Hey there, this is Pete Townsend from Norio Ventures, and welcome to Money Never Sleeps, a podcast that looks inside the head of entrepreneurs and at what makes them do what they do. This episode of Money Never Sleeps is kindly sponsored by Ireland's fintech and financial services recruitment specialist, Top Tier Recruitment. If you or a colleague need help attracting and retaining great talent for your fintech or financial services company, it is highly advisable that you build a relationship with the team at Top Tier Recruitment. You can find them at toptierrecruitment.com and tell them we sent you. This week, we talked to David Vachev from R3 about his role as venture development lead at R3. We did a deep dive into how startups can come to grip with the enterprise sales cycle, which is so relevant right now with how much harder enterprise sales have become with the pandemic, especially for startups embracing newer technologies. So here we go with David Vachev from R3 on this week's episode of Money Never Sleeps. Here we go again. Welcome to Money Never Sleeps. We're recording today from the home studio, and we're on with David Vachev, Venture Development Lead in EMEA for R3, who are an enterprise blockchain software firm working with a broad ecosystem of more than 300 participants across multiple industries from both the private and public sectors to develop blockchain applications on Corda, an open source blockchain platform, and Corda Enterprise, a commercial version of Corda for enterprise usage. At R3, David helps Cord apps or startups leveraging Corda at the core of their business to build, grow, and scale. Before joining R3, David spent 15 years in the capital markets, but I'll let him tell the rest of the story. So welcome to the show, David. Thank you, Pete, for having me. Awesome to have you on. And given your role with, with R3 and my role in helping DLT-enabled startups or distributed ledger technology-enabled startups like FAC. Shout out to Brian McNulty and the FAC team, um, who are also building on Corda. Uh, this conversation was just waiting to happen, wasn't it? Yeah. No, thank you very much uh, for, for having me. It's obviously uh, an acceleration of, uh, of, of trends here, and DLT certainly at the forefront of that. So very exciting to, to be here and to be part of that. Awesome. Thanks so much. So let's get started with your backstory and how you got to this point, yeah? Yeah, of course. So yeah, as, as you mentioned, I spent 15 years in capital markets work within, within Credit Suisse and really at that time, very, very, very obvious the inefficiencies within, within financial enterprises and certainly that, that those continue. And R3 really started back in 2014 around that. It was a set of working groups for banks. So they were looking to ideate on what were the potential use cases for blockchain. Obviously, Bitcoin and, and public blockchains were very popular at the time. But how could you make these work for these large, highly regulated enterprises? Now, the conclusion they reached that those blockchain applications just were unsuitable for these real world business transactions. So R3 developed their own blockchain platform. So that's Corda. And we really realized that Corda's use case, after experimenting this more and, and getting into these real world live production use cases that extended far beyond just financials. And as you mentioned, now we lead the world's largest blockchain ecosystem. It's over 350 members now. So within that, we've extended that ecosystem further. And this is really my role within the venture development team. So the venture development team in the program is the gateway into R3 and this quarter ecosystem for all early stage blockchain startups building on quarter. So we're really helping startups not just with the technology, but to validate their business model, to find their product market fit, to get production ready, accelerate their go-to-market strategy. Really, our goal is to help support startups to build, grow, and scale and realize their success. I love it. It's a, a really a, a passion of mine as well. And you know, as folks know out there, 
that that is uh, where I spend the bulk of my time is with helping early stage startups get to market, get customers, and get funded. Right, and those are three of the hardest things to do with early stage startups. Um, never mind with you know those that are embracing a new technology that a few years ago people kind of conflated, right, for lack of a better word, um, and still do to an extent, but that, um, you know, I'm working with a few folks as well that have said, listen, the future of the financial markets and the infrastructure of those markets is based on distributed ledger technology. Um, and that future has already started to unfold now in a few different pockets around the world. Um, and uh, it's becoming more and more important. Um, and there's a big gap out there in terms of sometimes the understanding, the funding, and so on and so forth with all this. So it's great to have you there doing this and and leading it for the community, which is awesome. Yeah, and it's a very important point you you mentioned there because ultimately DLT is at the heart of these, but DLT is a technology. And you know, I recently held a startup webinar series discussing specifically this that using DLT is a technology, but how can you leverage it and use it to solve real world problems? And this is the premise of what R3 does as an enterprise blockchain company. And we've extended that to the startups. So if you think of most of how we support our startups, one of them is with quarter technical workshops to help them. But a large part of that is with content resources, introductions and connections. We have mentorships from industry leaders within enterprises. We facilitate introductions to potential customers or investors at the times. We have partnerships with high quality incubators and accelerator programs. And we also run these sponsored industry challenges, which we're running the InsureTech challenge right now to, to allow these enterprises to set these problem statements and allow our startups to, 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 to build on blockchain for a real world problem and enter into commercial pilots. So really what, what we do is all to leverage that technology, but to make it relevant, to make it relevant for the startups and to make it relevant for their customers. I gotcha. I gotcha. Makes sense. And it's, you know, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but in terms of making it relevant and making it really resonate um, with customers and as well as investors, sometimes it's, um, you know, talk about, it's not sometimes, it's all the time. Talk about your value proposition and the impact you're having. Um, rather than just focusing 100% on, on the technology that you're using, right? Which I think is a common, um, you know, uh, perhaps a common pitfall sometimes coming from a, a technical founder perspective, but with a little bit of help, they can shape that proposition to make it, like you said, more relevant um, to those that are buying the product and also investing in the business. Yeah. Solve your customer's problem rather than just build a technology. Exactly. So just looking at the here and now, David, um, as, as you know, startups have a hard enough time as it is in the best of times um, in terms of getting their products to market and getting customers, getting funded. But with the world on fire right now, like it is in a number of different, uh, for a number of different reasons, how are those in your program dealing with all of this uncertainty? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very good question. And really, as much as the uncertainty faced out there in the world, obviously, startups are right at the epicenter of that. So in, in a one way, they do have a slight premium because there is a premium flexibility. Obviously, these large enterprises that have to shift all their employees to all of a sudden working from home, something that a five-man startup it could, can do quite readily. So there's certainly is a positive side of, of, of the things. But as you said, by far the biggest thing is the uncertainty this has brought about to their end customers, which for our startups is primarily these enterprises and corporation. Because while the accelerating digital transformation is, is clearly on the way, 
that doesn't mean, as you rightly say, in the here and now, that that enterprises are making these decisions. At the moment, you know, we've just come out of this uncertainty and we still are figuring out how to come out from it. And startups are really faced with how they have to pivot their business models and how to adapt to this. And it's been a learning experience. And we've obviously helped them with them as, as much as we can from all the resources and the connections we had. But generally speaking, the, the COVID crisis really revealed this general lack of connectivity and data exchange. So this is obviously especially related to supply chains. We've seen this, that critical goods shouldn't be left sitting there idle for days when they're needed. We need visibility into the supply chain data. And you know, we, we need to be able to provide these services and, and, and provide these shipments across borders, you know, whether that's pharmaceutical products, healthcare products, or, or things benign as toilet paper. So it's really brought about these inefficiencies in the current infrastructure. Now, one thing we did to help our communities, we ran this quarter call to action challenge. So, you know, we wanted to help these startups out there who are coming up with solutions to tackle this crisis. And to give you some examples of a lot of these quarter startups, which just simply pivoted their business models within the space of a month to address current needs. To give you some examples, we had ID Works, which is focused on self-sovereign identity. It really pivoted to create a software tool to provide an open stack for healthcare and pharmaceutical companies. So that accelerated their connectivity to all these healthcare apps that are popping up now, which you've seen obviously around the crisis. We had Guild One, which is focused on the energy sector. But again, they pivoted and, and leveraged this blockchain platform to enable better accessibility and compliance for the public health sector. So moved verticals. We had new, new credits. They set up a credit grade facility to help buyers financing their healthcare procurement orders. Black Gull, which used their platform to support small, medium enterprises and micro traders during COVID. So these are just a few of examples, really. But, you know, it's very clear that the financial infrastructure isn't fit for purpose. And these startups are positioning themselves for these upcoming changes and really pivoting where they can. And it, 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 it's great to see that. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there's kind of a follow on from that that I will come back to in a couple of minutes, David, really around, you know, the the approach that startups can take now with regards to the enterprise sales cycle. You can almost split some of the personas down into a couple of camps, those that really are still ambitious and passionate about driving their overall corporate innovation programs forward, doing new things, taking on new challenges, even with all of this going on right now. Um, and there are those that are kind of, you know, they're not hiding in a corner, but they've said, listen, you know, way too many other priorities to really think about some of these things right now. Come back to me in six months time. There's an element there that don't respond to that just yet, but I want to come back to looking specifically at startups themselves and those that are enterprise geared. Um, what do you see as a state of play for funding for those businesses right now? Hmm. Well, you really touched upon the two biggest things out there for startups at the moment, which is selling to enterprises and and the state of, of of fundraising so it's a it's a it's a very very pertinent question and, and very much at the top of the minds of our startup community so this whole unprecedented uncertainty in 2020 has really turned startup fundraising completely on its head so many of these early stage startups are left wondering you know how can they continue to grow out their business when access to capital is seemingly frozen so to address these, we obviously had multiple conversations within our community around this, and obviously, you know, we help these make these connections. So, 
we recently tapped into some of our venture capital investors, our accelerator, incubator capital raisers in our community to gather their thoughts around this, to, to put something a bit more structured. And you know, all of the webinars that we're hosting around this theme, all the content pieces, we put them together in one blog piece to really summarize that. And two key trends really have emerged, which m- most startups are now becoming aware of, which is the startup investors have been spending up to 80% of their time making sure that their existing portfolio companies are okay. So this is yeah. a huge number. This is a, a huge, huge number. We, we had a one VC say, look, right in the middle of March or so, the most important thing in, in my mind was, was, was getting face masks to all my portfolio companies and making sure that all their employees are okay. These were completely unprecedented times. So now that they've generally have taken care of that and they understand that things are okay and they've stressed that to their business models, they've gone back to now looking at potential new investments. And that's the second part where they're evaluating which startups will benefit most from this experience expected acceleration of digital transformation, which are positioned there, which are pivoting towards that, and what will be these mega trends going forward. So it's very clear that the impact on 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 startup fundraising is, is very real. I mean, global VC funding's fallen at least by 20% since March in terms of deal size and quantity, and valuations have dropped by over 30%. So the this is very real. And you know, I think probably more helpful to... to to, to your community and to everybody else is well, what are these actionable steps that our investor community have have told these startups like what's the advice from our investor community yeah. that that I think is a bit bit more helpful and I put these together which really summarizes some of their their thoughts in that blog but I mean to give you a brief overview of it it's really number one is optimizing workflows, really reducing your costs and and offer new revenue streams for enterprises. Like find out what they need right now, what they will be needed. So again, that's the pivoting. Number two, find your product market fit very quickly. So again, you need to show your solution is absolutely essential right now. Stress test the business model again to see how much of what you're offering is necessary and the third point, cash flow remains the lifeblood of any business. So again, 18 months of runway is the consensus. Make sure you've stress tested for that. Next point, valuations. They're being reset, so just accept that. But it's more important to optimize for runway, as we said above there, than valuations. And then the final point is, again, just accept that investors are being increasingly cautious given the current uncertainty. A slow response doesn't mean lack of interest. Again, they're working through situations. They're working through these portfolio companies. So just stay with it and and keep keep uh, keep persevering. And you know the COVID crisis underscored this need for for digitalization and for for transformation across all industries. So blockchain is compelling. It's obviously enabler technology. So it it will come. And along with Internet of Things and AI and other technologies, which are going to be these enabling technologies, that they they will continue to have their time in 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 all of these enterprises. So stay relevant and stay focused to these, and that you can definitely see that more and more VCs are starting to come back and look into and look into new investments. Yeah, and they we talked about this on the podcast before, in that you know these new ways of doing things for VCs, and it's just as a as a founder you need to be able to adjust to that. And I was listening to a podcast recently, again, Nick Moran from the full ratchet. And I feel like I'm giving him a shout out all the time on the show because 
uh, I count uh, the full ratchet podcast as kind of my masters in VC uh, over the last couple of years, 200 plus episodes, right? And um, obviously nothing uh, really works like experience, but having that reference point. So I'd suggest people people listen to that. There's so much there to, to educate founders on. It's a lot of information. But one of his most recent es- episodes, um, I think it was with Samil Shah from Haystack Ventures. Um, he was talking about three things. One, we will do a social Zoom right? We want to get to know you. Um, So just be prepared for that and that we will have at least one conversation, half hour, more, maybe whatever it is to figure out you as a person and learn about you, right? And that that was the first thing. Um, The second thing is they're probably going to spend more time doing reference checks on you, right? Because without having that ability to meet you face to face um, and to really get that cut of your jibe, right? Um, That they're going to need to talk to more folks out in their network or folks that you know, um, that they may not, where they're looking for an introduction to these folks to, to learn more about you. Um, th- th- he said, be prepared for that. The third thing is be prepared to be able to, or not even be prepared, but just you need to be able to communicate your business in a structured manner more concisely in your deck, right? I've seen a startup recently do this. Uh, I won't name names, but that I probably spent an hour giving them some feedback on their deck, which was okay. It was in so-so shape. Um, and b- between the time that I gave them the feedback um, and the time that they then got back to me, they said, Pete, we already had our meeting with our old deck with uh, a potential investor and we got a term sheet from them off that deck. So, haha. I'm like, well, listen, this was just the goodness of my heart. I gave you guys an hour and gave you some feedback. But the key was, that in-person experience can really overcome um, some faults in your deck and faults in how you communicate things in writing, right? Um, now, your deck is only there to get you your first meeting. Anyway, the point of sharing that was was absolutely, um, you know, th- those five things you 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 just brought us through are extremely relevant. Um, and just adding to that with a, with a few of my own hints and tips that uh, that I've heard recently, yeah? Yeah, and that, that's a very Im- important point because now Zoom calls and are becoming the normal and may well stay here uh, even after as we move further and further out of lockdown. Many VCs are simply saying, well, why do they need to travel all the way around the world constantly? And they may well continue to do this by simply to save themselves some time. So it's certainly, again, worth preparing for the, for the, for the future. And as you said, many of these social cues are, are missed when you're on, on video calls and many things can be compensated for in a real person meeting that you might not get the opportunity for. But the, the more important point that you really raise is here is use this as an excuse if you want to call it, but to make sure that your deck is up to scratch. And, you know, here you're not showcasing necessarily a technology or you're not sh- explaining your proposal to a customer. You need to explain this in a concise, compelling and, and, and actionable format for for an investor to, to, to grab their attention. So you need to really think about what, what what metrics are these investors looking at? What, what would they care about from my company? Like, how are they evaluating me and the proposition? Is it on the technology? Is it on my idea? Or is it my execution of it? And how does my deck reflect that? And really ask yourself these tough questions because it, it's, a, it's a great learning experience and one that once you've, you've started to get right and go towards that path will help you with more and more investor meetings. David, you just put a big soapbox right in front of my feet. 
I'm not going to step up on it right now, though, because I, could, I, I was about to go into full rhetorical mode there on, you know, steps one through 10. But we'll save that for another conversation. Uh, but yeah, you're so right. What, and the, the pivot, I think, is really important. I've seen a very interesting pivot outside of DLT recently. Connor McGinn from Akara Robotics, who we had on the show, they were building robots um, for senior care, right, to be able to engage with people in, uh, in elder care homes. And what they found out through some of the technology that they were exploring round about the time um, that, you know, the, the COVID-19 broke out in Wuhan uh, back in December um, was that um, they had come across an ultraviolet light uh, disinfectant, right? And so they quickly pivoted and they started building robots that you could send into a medical care facility of any kind um, with ultraviolet lights that could then disinfect a room, right? Um, so that that was a pretty sharp pivot <laughs> that I've seen recently, but going right to the point of what's going to be helpful, what's going to be relevant right now, you know? Yeah. No, it's a very important point. And maybe to, to, to finish this, this topic really on a, on a more positive, you know, mega trend note, and this really goes back a little bit to my past life within within investments but i used to look at more holistically around startup investing and it's it is worth noting that the unprecedented amount of central bank liquidity out there to help support the financial crisis has fed straight into the financial markets so immediately when central banks are buying all, all all the all the bonds out there people move up the risk curve to, to public stocks and then once they start getting expensive again you continue to move up the risk curve. So as these startup investors uh, look at their allocations towards public markets, they look at their allocations within their general portfolios and they start to see that that's okay and they need to move further up the risk curve, eventually their allocations towards venture capital, towards startups will start increasing again. So there's definitely a, a, a greater macro trend coming uh, as well. And you can see that's already filtering through for the public market. So I, I'm definitely more optimistic that VC funding will start to, to, to accelerate again as more and more public markets become more and more expensive and people look to alternatives. So even, even from, from, from that, regardless of digital transformation, I think there's a good tailwind coming as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, one of the uh, one of the first people that got me going in the venture direction a few years ago, um, he was talking about cycles, right, and the fintech cycle, um, and talking about valuations and where we were within that cycle. And I kind of looked at him like, you know, well, yeah, regardless of that, and where the valuation is, there's still a real world implication here of the value proposition that the startup is delivering. And something may just need to be done. It may need to get out there. And he's like, well, yeah, but there's still this investment approach that those in the investment community take. And they're going to be looking at valuations and how things are done out there and, and mega trends, like you're saying, David. Um, but looking at a different kind of cycle, right, that we were talking about earlier and to come back to this, um, how are the startups in your program doing with some of what we call the changing hearts and minds really around this very long enterprise sales cycle that um, I've 
uh, referred to in the past as uh, like a pregnancy, um, nine months. And then someone said, no, 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 it's like two pregnancies, one right after the other. Um, you know, so how are, how are folks doing in your community with, uh, with, with the sales cycle? Well, yeah, that's really the second part of fundraising and selling to enterprises and this lengthened sales cycle are, are really the, the hot topics here amongst all these startup. Companies. Absolutely. So very, very, very relevant again. And we, we did, again, we spoke to many of our startups that have now successfully navigated this and have sold into enterprises in the sense that they're now at the recurring revenue stage. So they've already navigated this process and are doing so in a, in a scalable and repeatable way. So to get their tips. And then obviously we, we have the largest ecosystem around enterprises. So we spoke to many of those and said, look, from your perspective, what's it like being sold into at the moment? You know, what do you, do you feel that that you're welcoming innovation at the moment or do you feel you're just too resource and time constraint how does the process work given what's what's happened so we really did a deep dive into this with uh, with many use cases and you know startup products and solutions they obviously give enterprises access to these new revenue streams they they cut costs they facilitate new connectivity drive out legacy inefficiencies there's, there's so many things but really to be able to sell into that it is is needs a defined pro process and a strategy and you know this really comes down to if you're not measuring and tracking what you're doing you can't take the relevant actions to improve and then subsequently shorten the sales cycle because if you're just relying for example on a customer introduction that might work out okay or it might not but then you you have no real feedback for that and it's not really replicable because if that person leaves that company or goes that was your only way way in so you really want to go beyond that and create a definable repeatable scalable strategy that uh, that you can really leverage for the future and you can also scale uh, as your as your company itself grows yeah absolutely and i, I read that uh, the b2b sales cycle piece that um, that you put together, David, and it was really impressive, really helpful. And what resonated with me was just, like you said, you can't change what you can't, what you don't measure, right? And that getting the processes in place up front to be able to track all your interactions um, with potential customers, um, with your network in general, right? Because they're going to be, um, you know, points of contact for leads for for customers. Um, and I really thought of one of the founders that I work with that we've had on the show as well, Ollie Walsh from Pippet uh, here in Ireland. Um, and he really excels at getting this framework set up because he had done it many, many times um, as a consultant before he launched Pippet, really excels in getting this framework set up um, just in using a CRM, right? And getting all the marketing automation pumped out. Um, and it's something that um, people sometimes take for granted saying, hey, I could just spin up HubSpot or whatever, right? But um, there's a real science there to, to how you do this. And I really like the way that you laid it out um, in that uh, in, in the piece that you guys pulled together on that. Yeah, well, thank you. That's that's very kind. I can't take full credit for that because most of that uh, the content was, was very much based on the experiences of the startups that had done this very well. And, and similarly from from the enterprises who have uh, who have been sold to so we really tried to collect that and say look let's just not say what we think should be done what has been a successful strategy and uh, as you rightly say it is to do with that it's creating an effective sales funnel from the top to really classify these steps along the sales journey that will go from lead to a loyal customer and you know it's really important to, to discuss this because 
B2B buyers or customers, really why the process is so long is because they have a set of jobs that they need to do within that. And you need to map out that customer journey. Part of that is they need to find the decision enabling information to allow them to make a purchase. They need to validate that and figure out, you know, how is that relevant to them? or How does that fit in? And really, then they need to drive alignment along key stakeholders. And typically, we found that there's an average of seven internal stakeholders. And this is, well, I can talk a bit more about this, this where design thinking comes into it. But really, being able to, to map that journey and being able to align your revenue model with that customers and the stakeholder mapping to, to, to realize where their success is, to align your business model with that success makes it makes the strategy work. But again, how do you do that? You need to track what you're doing. You need to see which KPIs are relevant to what you're trying to achieve. So some of the ones that we give examples to are things like the comparing the, the marketing qualified leads, those have shown interest to sales qualified leads that confirm that want to make a purchase. So you're really monitoring the effectiveness of that sales funnel. You have to track the onboarding time. The faster customers can integrate your product into their workflow, the faster they begin to experience its benefits. Uh, again, sales funnel transition rates, you really need to measure how far that's moving. That's the velocity because if a prospect is stuck in the middle, you need to make sure it throws up an exemption report that's actionable and you can do something about it rather than just letting it foster and then come back to it at a time in the future. That's just simply not, not scalable. And obviously things like the customer net promoter score, very important because turning these customers into lifelong fans, supporters will really help you obviously in terms of upselling, but they will be your promoters going forward. So again, that strategy can, can scale and they can help do the, the work for you. But they're doing it because they're, you're aligned with their success and, and they're happy to, to use and buy your product. Absolutely. I, I, I really like the, you know, um, like the top of the funnel, the personality style or personality driven targeting that you can do um, where you may have in one organization, you're going to have a CTO, a chief innovation officer, a chief commercial officer, a chief operating officer, um, and maybe even a CFO that mm -hmm. all, you know, are going to have roles that vary from one organization to the next. So for example, the CTO in one organization may be hold the end buying decision where the chief um, operations officer in another organization may hold that. But the, the CIO is going to influence things, the CFO is going to influence things, and, it, and it's working through all of that with this real, like, like I said, personality-driven um, approach in the targeting. And then Finding a way to, to actually track that really boggles my mind to say, how do you actually start spinning up a personality matrix in HubSpot, right? Or your CRM to say, what's going to be the right target here? Um, if you guys looked in, I, I know there's, you know, you talked about your seven different internal stakeholders, right? Um, and what drives, uh, what drives them. Um, but how deep do you suggest that companies in your network that are within your program uh, actually take things to dig into the buyer persona? Yeah, and it's, a, it's an important question. And really, this gets to the heart of it. We can't overemphasize this enough. The reason why the sales cycle is so long, so that first touch point with your customer right to when they close the deal, and why it's so lengthy and complex and multifaceted is because 
these enterprises consist of so many multiple stakeholders and each of them have different interests and motivations. And this is key. So that one customer introduction you may get, he may have a completely different motive to the other six who may be deciding or the other 10, if you're very unlucky or, or maybe lucky. But the point is, you know, direct users will obviously seek functionality. So that's primarily who you're likely to get introduced to. And you can demonstrate that. But then budget holders want to see a good financial deal. The production managers, for example, want high throughput and operations executive obviously are trying to manage risk and want to lower that. So this is why this is so important to be able to map that. And the process of design thinking really begins from understanding your customer. You know, again, does my solution directly alleviate an immediate pain point for that customer right now. So you start really with that endpoint and then work back to what your product or solution is. So by always constantly thinking of that, you're really trying to figure out the three critical categories to map the customer buying cycle. So that's the buyer's behavior, their accelerators and friction points. And the parts of design thinking that do that is the persona. So again, this is what you're trying to do is who, who are the buyers there and you know, what are their problems? Who, what might their obstacles, what would the, their timing be? What are their personality traits? What's their day-to-day like? What's their influences? What their motivations are? Then again, stakeholder mapping, as you said, really you're trying to define the role and influence with this. And a big question you're trying to, to, to find out. And again, this is again done by, by a, a strategy, which is interviewing these people, asking them the right questions rather than selling them a solution, finding out What's their role in relation to their solution? How are they involved in the decision cycle? What are the dynamics of their internal decision-making process? What are their alternatives? Is doing nothing for them totally fine? And you know, a big, a, a massive one, which many people don't really ask, is say, do those stakeholders see this as a big, urgent problem as you see it? Will they act now or prioritize cash flow? Have they got mobility of that budget? Or will they think this is something to put on the back burner? And by really asking these questions, we can then map our customer journey alongside and think, okay, these are the stakeholders along the path. This is the decision-making process for this. How do we align with that? Does our product, how can we make it do so? And how do we do that via a scalable strategy via tracking the metrics? And that's really at the core of any successful strategy. Absolutely. And I'm sitting here with a big smile on my face, Dave, because I just love this stuff, right? And uh, the the whole personality side of these decisions, and I'm thinking about two folks um, that I've stayed in touch with over the years that I would consider friends at this stage that had done that extremely well, right? This qualification of leads, and that's what they're doing. But from my perspective as a buyer, this was when I was with BNP Paribas, David, I felt like they wanted to be my friend, Mm -hmm. Right. And that was effective. They were genuinely nice people. So Zainab Merrick-Smith, who's now with PA Consulting, shout out to Zainab, um, but also Miles Bell from Lab 577, um, again, through the years going back in different places that he had worked. And it was lots of questions around what is the organization? How is it set up? What's your reporting line? Um, who do they report to? Really figuring out me and what was my influence in the buying decision, right? Just really impressed with how both of them did that, but in such a way that I felt like they were truly interested in building a relationship with me, mm-hmm. right? Which I think transparently, hopefully, fingers crossed, both actually were. Um, but it, is there anything that, um, you know, now with the way that things are, are have changed with 
um, Zoom being such a critical part of how you start building relationship with somebody. Um, what's been your advice to folks with the enterprise sales cycle um, on not having that ability to go meet someone for coffee or perhaps even buy them lunch, yeah. right? That you want to get to know. What, what's been the guidance there? Yeah, it's, it's an important question and really not just for startups, but for generally all sales organizations have had to think about this because it's a large part of what they do and this is what they're reliant on. So what the, 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 Part you mentioned there is a very important one because when you throw the word B2B, the tagline B2B out there, people forget that it's it, they're still a consumer. They're still a human at the other end of that transaction. And understanding that personality and where they fit in and what their motivations and driving uh, driving forces are and, and in, uh, internal friction points is very important. And relating to them at, at a personal level is important. So... That, that doesn't change just because it's a B2B model because uh, until the time that machines are making all the, 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 the decisions, we're still here. And the other point, which uh, again, you, you hinted on, but that is a very important point, is about the experience of that user, which can be via a personal interaction and how they do that, but similarly can just be via a better user experience. Again, B2C companies focus on this quite a lot when they when when they 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 deploy an app to a phone because people are used to having these great consumer experience companies such as Amazon and on the, on their on their apps and it's very easy for consumers to, to to be preconditioned for that but those same consumers are, are of course B2B buyers and and they're used to these positive user interactions so try to replicate that as well the best you can now when we move into these zoom environments you, you again you do lose some of that personal touch and and you have to adapt to that so really you you need to continue with what you can along those lines so that doesn't mean you stop making any effort because you think we can't meet them to for for tea you you simply schedule those zoom calls but you be you, your your strategy has to to continue with understanding that buyer and understanding what it is they need. And that has to come via, via a Zoom call or via uh, email or via surveys or how they're doing it or via continued engagement and dialogue. Because just the fact that you're calling someone via Zoom or via a coffee, if the fact that you're still considerate of them and considerate of their buyer's journey, that still, as you said, may well take five years, it may be quicker, but the process is the same. And one thing we found speaking more directly to our communities, we asked them, okay, look, well, let's just say what right now have you managed to do to sell into enterprises during this time? So this was more the period from March up till May or so. And it, we, we were serving our startups all along that path and saying, right, okay, there's no meetings. You're not to this. So what have you been doing? And a couple of things emerged from that, maybe five or so points, but really the ones that were successful made their product adoption seamless. So they stripped their MVP, they stripped it down to the bare essentials. So they integrated it straight into their customer's workflow and said, look, we've got our foot in the door. That's it. Let's just do that. And then once the uncertainty subsides, we'll, we'll continue from there. So that, that was a very good strategy. Many of them shifted to target these small and mid-sized enterprises. So what have we been discussing here? Number of stakeholders. Obviously, as you move to a smaller enterprise, you have much lot smaller stakeholders, uh, the number of stakeholders. So again, it's much easier to sell into that where there's less decision makers. So again, get your foot into the door. A very important point, agreeing on a closed plan. So people aren't just checking in, as we said, on, on Zoom calls. You're also 
having a functional side of that meeting as well. So you're saying, well, how are things progressing? Like what, what do you need to, to continue? And again, it's very important. Next point, minimizing contract and documentation. I think that's been implemented fairly yeah. well with DocuSign and on these others. And at last case, consider lowering prices. Some have done this or some have offered a freemium model during this uncertainty simply, again, to, to build traction, which, again, is an option. But can you see all of these things are really consideration of what's happening at that enterprise and trying to align what your business model and revenue model is with that? Yeah, and I, I really feel like those that are following um, you know, these patterns we're talking about right now are going to be ones that will come out of this most successfully. Yeah. Yeah. The ones that have really allocating their resources to where they're most needed. They're questioning every budget decision being nimble. They're really selling only what's immediately addresses a customer's direct problems right now. And then they're, they're following this design thinking and customer journey mapping to maximize value mm-hmm. to their stakeholders. The ones that are doing that and they're doing it in the in a, in a virus strategy, via a measurable strategy, will succeed now and going forward in the merger because it's just such a great strategy. And it, it's ultimately why all of these sales strategy books and, and plans were, were created because these things work time and time again. They do. They do. And a, a lot of it is, you know, that some startup founders may look at and say, oh, geez, I got to hire a big you know, uh, VP of sales to go do this for me. Um, but I'm, I'm working with a founder right now where there is a certain degree of effectiveness that the founder themselves has with sales, especially at the enterprise level, right? Um, and that it just works and there's going to be a natural process that they will follow based upon just their own business approach. And if you can really fill the gaps um, with that sales approach um, with some of the things that have worked before, in uh, in other verticals, in other areas, in different stages of company growth, um, you're going to do well. Yeah. Right? In fact, that's probably the most important. It's probably almost the worst thing somebody can do at the very early stage is to is to make that higher. Those type of hires are are very much needed at when the time is right. But this is really when you're at that recurring revenue stage and you're really trying to go gangbusters so so this is at the stage where you know you've sold into these enterprises and you, your strategy really needs to scale in, in in another level and this is you know towards ipo and 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 on that track really most of these as you said having the correct crm and tracking these tools and using your experience and your relationships and but, but just simply doing that in in an in virus strategy and via a measurable one is really all that's needed now but you're totally right. It's very simple, but not easy. Some some time, effort, and attention is needed to it, and that that has to be done if that's what if that's what your end goal is. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I, there's some interesting points from uh, from an individual in Chicago uh, who will remain nameless who shared with me um, some detail on the um, the top questions that any founder needs to be able to ask themselves and answer themselves when they're thinking about hiring ahead of. Uh, sales, right? Or a VP of sales, whatever it is. Um, and I'll include those in the show notes because uh, they're quite interesting. And a lot of it, like you're saying, is, is around the qualification side, right? Or the top, one of them was, what are the top 15 questions you're going to ask your target in priority order to qualify them, yeah. right? And being able to share that with, uh, as a founder, being able to share that with someone you're interviewing for a VP of sales role means that you've got this down pat. You've really figured out how this you know, sales professional needs to sell your business for you. Yeah, Yeah. it's a very important question. I I get this quite a lot because a a lot of pitch decks, as you said, showcase that, that we recently hired, you know, somebody from a large 
name from a large enterprise to do this. And okay, while on the surface impressive, a lot of VCs will will question that for the reason to say, okay, well, that's great. But firstly, obviously, that's an expense, number one. But number two, how has that person worked at a startup before if they were used to having the infrastructure of an enterprise and having the support network of that selling without all of that is obviously much a much greater limitation is that startup prepared for that and you know what was the purpose of that hire in terms of the value they can add beside those connections and it's very important to be able to justify that absolutely we've covered a lot of bases on the enterprise sales cycle and this is a topic that i could just keep going on forever and ever just because i was always that guy right i was always the one being sold to and i've got a lot of thoughts on this but um just any any last key points on the enterprise sales cycle you wanted to mention yeah, I mean, really, I can't really emphasize this uh, enough is number one, have a strategy. So please don't just rely on customer introductions. Those are good, but try to map where that customer fits in within that stakeholder. So implement design thinking to align your revenue and business model with your customer success. And how that works is by following that customer journey down from initial interest up to the final decision and please align your strategy and the measuring metrics to follow that. Got it. That makes so much sense. Um, and I'm, I'm going to dig in a bit further to everything that you guys are sharing uh, within the, the venture program with R3 because uh, it's really get great content that you guys are putting forward, um, not only on the, out on the website and some of the, um, the newsletters you guys sent around, but also just in the, in the webinars and um, also uh, shout out to Catherine Rudder for Life in the Fast Chain right? In her podcast that yeah. she does for R3. I met Catherine um, last year in Dublin when she was over announcing the R3 Dublin launch and, and covering that. And uh, she's a great person. So yeah. And of course, any of this content and webinars, the blogs that we've done are, are welcome to your community. So please reach out, or share them with them. More than happy to do so. Awesome. Thanks. And I, I know we, we took a little bit of different tact on this episode, David, but I'm going to ask you the question that we always ask all the guests on our show. Tell us one thing that people wouldn't expect to know about you. Oh, wouldn't expect to know about me. Well, okay, maybe I can answer that with things I didn't expect to know about myself where I recently found found out during lockdown, perhaps. That, that's that, good. That's a revelation in, in myself. And it, I kind of reflected on thinking, well, like, what are my favorite hobbies or extracurricular activities? Like, what is it that I really like doing? And it dawned upon me that it's really traveling eating out in new places and team sports such as basketball. Like those are the three things. Wow. I, which I pretty much did on a most regular basis all of the time. And it just appeared to me that some part of me seems to have missed, like is missing here. And, and then it finally dawned on me, that's it. Because these th three things together have just been completely wiped out. So a very interesting revelation during, during lockdown to, to find new hobbies. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Jesus. And, and it's, <laughs> It's getting to the point now, David, where my wife and I are just like, listen, we just got to go away somewhere, anywhere, just for a night, right? Because our thing was always travel, right? Yeah. And now with three young kids, that's gotten harder, but we always found ways to do creative little trips here and there. Um, and just with a lockdown, we haven't been able to. So yeah, I'm dying to get out and see something new for Jesus. While we had a five kilometer radius limit on our travel in Ireland, in Dublin specifically, I couldn't get to the ocean. Yeah, I couldn't get to the sea, and that was a, the the longest I had not been 
um, within basically, you know, a, a quick drive to the sea um, in, I don't know, 18, 20 years. Wow. Uh, and it, it, it killed me. But now we're, we're back out taking the kids down to the beaches. Doesn't matter whether you bring a swimsuit or not. They're going to go in. Right. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> what I thought was the cleanest car ever that I had when I wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. That's all gone out the window. Yeah. Anyway, that's always the way of traveling kids. And the, the good news with this is, is kids are generally very happy with, with many things, which is always good fun. And, and everyone else, everyone's expectations have been set so low now. Obviously we, we were confined to our living rooms. So now the fact that we can get out and do something, I think, is is cause for celebration so that should be embraced and we'll, we'll we'll start from there hopefully normal trips will return at some point soon and and we'll we won't take them for granted anymore as i certainly won't absolutely just cr- keep raising the bar notch by notch right yeah okay well david thanks so much for coming on to the show and sharing all of this with our listeners it's going to be really helpful for people to hear this uh so really appreciate your time thank you very much for having me and really hope it's helpful and useful to all your viewers Great. Thanks so much, David. That does it for this week, folks. And thanks to David for joining the show and sharing his knowledge. Links and show notes for this episode are on moneyneversleeps.ie, so check us out online. Remember, if you or a colleague need help attracting and retaining great talent for your fintech or financial services company, it is highly advisable that you build a relationship with the team at Top Tier Recruitment as they really know their stuff. You can find them at toptierrecruitment.com. Also, thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for editing this podcast. As for me, I increase the odds of startup success. Get in touch through the contact page on norioventures.com. You can check out what Owen Fitzgerald is up to these days on Twitter at Owen Fitzgerald9. Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See ya!